turning your Bibles or scrolling your app to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. The bulk of our time today will be spent in Acts chapter 5, but I want to actually back it up to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, so we can get a a good understanding both of where we left off, where we last preached, where Pastor Brad last left off in Acts chapter 4, and also to give us a little backdrop to paint the picture for what we're going to read about today in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, if you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along silently as I read aloud Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. This is what the word of God says. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me tell you about a man named Achan. We read of Achan not in the book of Acts, but actually in the book of Joshua chapter 7. Now the chapter before that, Joshua chapter 6, the Lord sends the Israelites into Jericho to take over the city and they do so. He gives them great victory. But as he does that, before they go in, he gives them some instructions. And he tells them to, when he goes into, when you go into the city, he wants you to obliterate it. Like, wipe it out wholeheartedly, top to bottom, inside it out. Wipe it out. But do not harm Rahab and her family. And don't take any plunder for yourselves. In fact, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron, that's supposed to be sacred and dedicated to the Lord. That's in Joshua 6 and verse 19. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So Jericho was to be destroyed, but the people were to take no plunder for themselves. And so the battle begins, and the battle belongs to the Lord, right? And God gives them victory, and they come out. Everybody's happy, high fives all around. The next battle was to take place in the city of Ai, the city that if you can say, you can spell. And Joshua sends spies into the city to scope out the place so they could say, okay, what do we, what do we have going on here? What do we need to do? The spies come back, and the spies say, you know what? We don't need to send in nearly as many people. I think we can take in between two and 3,000 people, which is a lot, but nowhere near as many as they took into Jericho. 
okay? So they go into Ai, the city of Vowels, and they send in two to 3,000 people to try to take over this city. And yet not only was it not easy, they were chased out of the city and lost three dozen men. 36 people died. Joshua comes before the Lord. He's distraught. He tears his clothes and says, God, this is not good. Other people are going to hear about this. The Canaanites, they're going to send people in. They're going to wipe us out. They're going to wipe out your name, our name for the earth. This is not good. God responds to Joshua. See, Joshua, here's the thing. While in Jericho, remember how I said nobody's to take any plunder for themselves? Well, that like didn't exactly happen. Somebody did take plunder for themselves. So what I want you to do is I want you to call together everybody and we're going to cast lots because that's how, that's how they made decisions. That's how God spoke to the people of God before his word was revealed. We're going to cast lots and the lot's going to fall on exactly the person who took the plunder for themselves. And so Joshua does that. He calls the people together and they cast lots. The closest thing we have to it is flipping a coin, basically. Coin flip number one. It singles out the tribe of Judah. Coin flip number two, it singles out the clan of the Zeharites. Coin flip number three of that clan, it's the Zimri family. And coin flip number four lands on none other than a man named Achan. And Achan says, you got me. It's true. While in the city, I saw a robe, a 200 shekels of silver, and a 50-shekel bar of gold, and I took that stuff with me back, and I buried it in a hole underneath my tent. Joshua says, okay. He sends messengers to his tent to see if this thing is true. Sure enough, it's true. They dig it up. They bring it back, and the people, the Israelites, stone Achan and his family to death. After that, they take everything that Achan had, the plunder that he took out of Jericho that he shouldn't have taken, his tent... Even all his livestock, animals, threw them all in this pit on top of these rocks and burned it to the ground. And that city is forever known as, or that portion of the land is forever known as the Valley of Trouble. A reminder of what happens when you disobey the Lord. Here ends Joshua 7. In Joshua chapter 8, the people attack the city of Ai. The Lord tells them, and while you're in there, you can take the plunder if you want it. And they do. The people win. And they come back. Once again, high fives all around. Now, I think, and if you wanted to read this, you could read about that in Joshua 6, 7, and 8. There's way more details than I just covered. We read that story. We hear of God acting in that way. And I think sometimes we respond and we're like, wow, (laughs) Old Testament God, am I right? That guy. Take sin really seriously. Look at how he responds to that. That's really crazy. Super glad I don't live then. (laughs) Awkward laugh. But we come upon Acts chapter 5 when we read of Ananias and Sapphira. This is New Testament God, right? And it catches us by surprise. It causes us to gasp. Because sometimes I think we look at God and we think, well, surely over time, what with the birth of his son, he's softened. Right? Kids will do that to a guy. So, so Jesus is born. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross. He's buried. He rises from the grave. He ascends to the Father. And God's kind of calmed down. He manages his anger differently now. Not that it was wrong before, but it's different. And then we read of Ananias and Sapphira, a similar situation. We'll see some several parallels. And we're like, wow, that's a pretty big deal. Joshua 6 saw a great victory in Jericho. They were on a roll. Then all of a sudden there's this dramatic interruption because there's sin in the camp. We're spending time in the book of Acts, Acts 1 through 4, nothing but good times. I mean, Peter and John were arrested in the earlier parts of chapter 4 and they're threatened. I don't mean to make light of it, but they're released before long. No harm comes before them and they continue to preach preach the word with boldness. And then we're back to celebrate good times, come on. Jesus has risen from the grave. He's ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has filled the believers. People are being healed. And the new church is up to about 5,000 people. Things could be worse. But just like the Israelites had a great run, but it was interrupted by sin, one person's sin, we see something similar happen to the new church. And so pick it up in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. That's a, 
That's an answer to Jesus' prayers, right? We read about that in the Gospel of John, John chapter 13. Uh, he, he prays, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says that. He prays the high priestly prayer in John 17 and says, Lord, make them be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And God has answered that prayer. He's answering that. They're of one heart. They're of one mind. So much so that it says that no one said, verse 32, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Skip down to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Now, this is a great result of what the Lord is doing among them. This is not a stump speech that you would hear from some political candidates, you know, who would maybe read this with a different tone of voice. You know, they had all things in common. They had everything in common. Everything's for free. That's not what we're seeing here. That could be anybody. You don't know what that was. Just a poor impression of anybody. You can't prove anything. That's not what this is. This isn't, this isn't socialism. This isn't communism. The government's not mentioned at all. In fact, even the church is not mentioned at all. It's not mandated by anyone that they do this. Why are they doing this? Verse 32 says they're of one heart and soul. Verse 33 says great grace was upon them all. They're responding to the work of God in their lives. They're responding to the Holy Spirit working in their lives so much so that the stuff they owned, they didn't even care that it was theirs. That's a big deal. What can we glean from this? that this is how we should live. This is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. This is describing what the Lord did. But you can't get the word ought out of the word is. So this is what the Lord did, and this is what we're seeing. You say, oh, can we get nothing out of that? No, there's an attitude, there's a mindset, there's a heart that pervades them and pervades all of Scripture and pervaded the first century church and should pervade the 21st century church. And it's a mindset that says this. What's mine is yours if you need it. What's mine is yours if you need it. It's not that I don't own things. It's not that things aren't mine. But what's mine is yours if you need it. Verse 32, those who believe were of one heart and soul. So much so that, that, that any of the things that belonged to them, he didn't even regard as his own. It's what's mine is yours if, if you need it. Verse 34 says there wasn't a needy person among them because uh, people would own land and houses and sell them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet and said, give this to people who have need. Make sure the needs are met. What's mine is yours if you need it. If a need comes up, meet that need. And so people sell property. They bring the proceeds to the apostles so it could be put into this common pot. And when a need arose, that need could be met because people lived their lives saying, what's mine is yours if, if you need it. For example, chapter 4, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which also means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's how they rolled. Not out of compulsion or coercion, Nowhere was this commanded. Nowhere was this mandated. Again, they were of one heart and one soul. Great grace was on them all. This is an evidence of God working in their lives, that they would say, what's mine is yours if you need it. Now look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Right after we hear of what Barnabas did, it doesn't say, and a man Ananias. It says, but a man Ananias. So in contrast to what we just heard about, this is a little different. In contrast to what we just heard about what Barnabas did, here's what Ananias did. And it starts out with that word, but, or however, that this is going to be different. This is different from what Barnabas had done. So Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of property. They bring back only part of the proceeds and lay it at the apostles' feet. Again, I don't want you to miss this. You might read this, see their tragic ending to their lives, and think they disobeyed God and they're getting punished for it. Where did God command this? Nowhere. You might say, well, they disobeyed the apostles. They're the spiritual leaders among them. They're supposed to submit to them and, you know, play nice in the sandbox with others. Nowhere did the apostles say this is what you must do. This is not a matter of disobedience. 
people sell their stuff, they receive money, they bring what they receive to the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira sold some stuff, received money, brought part of the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. They did this just like the people before them, right? So Barnabas did it, then they did it. And the problem is they did it and wanted to look as if they were doing what others were doing. They wanted to look as if they were as generous, as invested, as committed, as sacrificial, as holy, whatever you want to call it. They wanted that accolade, that feeling. They wanted to be associated with people who were doing these things, except they weren't doing the same thing. They wanted it to seem as if they had done that. Which brings us to our first point. You need to know that even believers, even believers, maybe walking with the Lord for a very long time, could be led down a road of very deep and dark sin. We'd be foolish to think that the longer we walk with the Lord, we are above these things. The longer we walk with the Lord, these things can't happen to us. What I've been a Christian for and you fill in the blank. If you've been a Christian for a long time, don't be so foolish to think that because you're a believer, a seasoned believer, that you can't be led into deep and dark sin. Satan can't possess Christians. You know that, right? Satan cannot possess Christians. You were what with a price? Bought with a price. So God owns Christians. And Satan can't take us out of his hands. Satan can't, can't cause our salvation to go away. There's not this cosmic battle, oh, I wonder who will win. It's Satan versus God. This is a landslide. This is a no-brainer. He's not going to win, but he's going to die trying. Literally. Says, the book says he's going to die trying. And he's going to continue to try. And he, he can't own you. He can't take you out of the Lord's hands if you are the Lord's. But he's going to, like, kick He's going to poke. He's going to try. He's going to die trying. And so here he has an opportunity and he fills Ananias' heart, which is what we read about in Acts 5 and verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why has this happened? And it's no wonder that Peter would be saying these things because it wasn't that long ago that Jesus was saying something similar to him, right? Right? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Luke 22, beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, like he's coming after you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so when we look at this portion of scripture, we are reminded that we have a very real enemy that he hasn't calmed down, and that he is always roaming around seeking whom he may devour, and he has his eye on the children of God. And even though he can't have us forever, he would love to have us for a little while. And even though he can't affect our eternal state with the Lord, he would love to die trying and just see if he can not ruin your eternity, but ruin your day, or your week, or your month. Now, how do we respond to this? Like, do we just live a life like, like, oh my gosh, Satan is somewhere. He's behind me, isn't he? Like, what do I do? This is not a call to be fearful and to live a life full of fear, but it's a call to be vigilant. It's a call to look at Acts chapter 5 and see what happened with Ananias and Sapphira and not be so foolish as to think, wow, that happened to them, stinks to be them. Glad I live now where these things don't happen. Because even seasoned believers can be led down a road of pretty dark pretty deep sin because Satan seeks to devour us. But see, here's the other thing. As I look back on my own life, I actually think there's enough evil in my own Peter LaRufa sinful nature to cause me to be tempted without Satan's participation at all. I'm pretty hesitant to say Satan made me do it or Satan was tempting me because one thing Satan is not is omnipresent. So if he's with Peter, he is nowhere else. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the world that seems to be pretty rough. So if he's with me and he is tempting, and I'm sure he, like, I'm sure he subs out the temptations like to, to demons and subcontractors, whatever they call it in hell. But it's not, I don't think everything I've done, every time I've experienced something in my life that was a temptation has been the result of Satan knocking at the door. James 1 Verses 14 and following says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
I think Ananias and Sapphira were probably believers. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But their example shows us that it's not hard. Even, even among the first century church where all these amazing things are happening, people are being saved by the thousands. The dead are being raised. The sick are being healed. Satan still can work. Our own sinful desires can still work against us and we can still be led down some deep and dark sinful roads. Secondly, you need to know how seriously God takes sin, especially the sin of hypocrisy. That's the sin here. I want to make sure that you see that. This has nothing to do with their giving record. Do you understand that? This has nothing to do with how much they gave. They're not judged by their giving record. They're judged because they were being hypocritical. Achan looked like everyone else after the battle of Jericho. He fought like everyone else. He shared in the victory. He was enjoying the high fives as they walked back to their tents. He looked like everyone else. On the outside, he looked like everyone else among the people of God at the time. But inside that tent, where nobody else could see, he was digging a hole and burying plunder. No one else knew that. Joshua didn't know that. God knew that. But on the outside, he had come up with this conspiracy, with this way to live, so that nobody would know that he had this plunder. But he knew, and God knew. And God wasn't having it, so to be sure that people didn't buy it, to be certain people knew things weren't as they seemed, God punishes Achan in a very public way that would be spoken of and remembered for generations to come, evidenced by the fact that we're talking about it today. Ananias and Sapphira looked like they were as committed as Barnabas and others. They looked like they were part of the team. They looked like they were doing the same thing. They looked generous. They looked invested. But this wasn't even mandatory to do. That's the point Peter makes if you see in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's like, bro, you didn't have to sell it. Or you could have sold it and kept every dime. That, that's not wrong to sell things. There wasn't a mandate saying, henceforth and forevermore, anybody who really loves Jesus in the church, they're going to sell things and bring it in. You had every right in the world to sell your stuff and bring in the proceeds to yourself and just keep it. It's their property. It's their sale. It's their profit. But they wanted to look like the rest. They cared about the look. They did this all for the look, and God called them on it. Verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Friends, read the Bible. That doesn't happen often. God takes sin seriously, especially hypocrisy. Verse 7 says that an interval of about three hours passes and Sapphira comes in, his wife, I want you to notice in verse 7, it says, not knowing what had happened. Okay? So get the picture. Try to understand it. In comes Sapphira, right? Have you guys seen Ananias? Peter's like, uh, first question. Like, so she doesn't know what has happened. That's what it says. And Peter says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold. Okay, this is how she found out where Ananias is. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband, what, are at the door, and they will carry you out. Huh? Boom, she drops dead. That's rough. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Throughout the Bible, God's most severe judgments seem to be reserved for hypocrites. If you read throughout Matthew, particularly chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Six times he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The seventh time he calls them snakes, but he's basically making the same point. But, the, but six times he literally looks at them and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, it says, let love be genuine. Literally in the Greek, love must be without hypocrisy. 
True love, genuine love will not have the two-facedness of hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. Love must be without hypocrisy. Romans 2 verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, Achan was one man among thousands And yet God chose to deal with his sin very seriously, very severely, very publicly, so that there would be no mistake that this type of sin, this double life, would not be tolerated among the people of God. Ananias and Sapphira, one couple among at least 5,000 people, one couple, sold one piece of land. They brought in part of the proceeds, made it look like they brought in all the proceeds. Is this really that big of a deal? God wasn't having it. And dealt with it very severely. Look at verse 5. What were the results? You say, well, he died. True. But don't miss the second part of that. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Skip down to verse 11. Sapphira dies. And great fear came upon the whole church. And upon all who heard of these things. And so... It seems that if great fear came upon the first century church when they heard these things, that we would do likewise as the 21st century church. That we wouldn't read that and say, wow, glad I wasn't living then. I don't think that's the point of what God wants us to glean from Acts chapter 5. But that great fear would come upon the people of God and we would think, I don't ever want to be a hypocrite. I don't ever want to be a hypocrite. I want to be singly and wholly and genuinely devoted to Jesus Christ for all my days by the grace of God. So that we would hear of these things and respond properly as opposed to reading through the historical narrative of the book of Acts, which it is, and say, wow, that must have been rough and move on with our life and decide where to go to lunch. I think something else we want to get from this passage is this, that you need to be on the lookout for the presence or absence of the discipline of God in your life. We're not in 1 Corinthians 5 today, we're in Acts 5. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Okay? And that's where the church is being affectionately referred to as a blob of dough. And a little leaven, all it takes is a little bit of yeast to work its way through the whole lump and cause it to rise. And what he's saying is a little bit of sin left among the people of God, where we just might think, for crying out loud, Achan's one man among thousands, Ananias and Sapphira, one couple among at least 5,000 people. What's the big deal? Paul reminds us a little leaven leavens the whole Lump. It's a metaphor for what sin does to the body of Christ. We're not supposed to be sinless, but we are supposed to sin less. That should be a goal. That should be something we want to do. Never going to be perfect until we are united with, with Christ in heaven and this body, this sinful nature that I explained, which finally literally put to death and I receive this new body and I'm not fighting with my own flesh. We're never going to be sinless until that day. But in the meantime, we sure can sin less. God gives us the ability to do that. He gives us the fruits of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And we're trying to sin less, Right? I hope so. But when there's one among us who looks like she's trying to sin less, she's at the community group grill out, or he's serving on the welcome team, or she's serving communion, he's singing on the worship team. But in reality, they're not really trying to sin less, they're just trying to not sin here. That's a problem. And a little leaven leavens the lump. So God instructs us to not allow 
persistent sin among his people, the church. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Meaning, stop judging the world. Can we just stop being surprised that the world acts unsaved? Wow, lost people seem lost. Am I right? Yeah, I know. Who'd have thunk? So am I to judge outsiders? No, Paul says. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Why? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Matthew 18, verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew 18, the concept of church discipline that we appeal to those scriptures for is given within the context of the lost sheep. How, God, how a good shepherd will leave the 99 and go after the one. With that in mind, let's go after one another when someone is persisting in sin. If your brother sins, go and tell him. If he hears you, you have won him. Done. But if he doesn't, don't stop. Go after the, the, the one. Bring them back to the 99. It seems like God is saying, I'll say this in grace for you a lot, 99 is not enough. Ah, 99. So close to 100. Ah, 5,000 people in the first century church, one couple, whatever. Ah, so many people walked with the Lord. One guy, Achan, took some plunder, buried it in his tent. Can we just, come on, who among us? Am I right? Like, no, go and show him his fault. If he hears you, you've won him. If he hasn't hears you, please don't stop. Take some others with you. Take two or three others with you so that uh, the, the, at, at the, the in the presence of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Maybe they'll hear, they didn't hear you, but maybe that person will hear them. But if he still doesn't hear you, tell it to the church. And if he still doesn't hear the church, now we have to be concerned because the leaven is staying. Does that make sense? The leaven is staying. And as much as we love the brother or sister, we also have to be concerned about the lump, the blob that we're all a part of, right? Called the church. So we have to be concerned. And now it's like, you know what? This doesn't seem to be stopping this person doesn't seem to want to walk with the Lord. And now we're told to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Gentiles or tax collectors, we would assume we're unsaved. We're going to treat you like you're acting. We're not going to continue to treat you as if you're in good standing with the Lord. That would be dangerous to you. That would be dangerous to that person because they're like, I feel like I'm, every, I'm still in community group. I still participate on this team. I still serve over here. I mean, I'm not really walking with the Lord, but I feel like I'm still get all the benefits, the perks that come with the memberships. I still have the decoder ring. I'm still part of the flock. The Bible says, purge the evil from among you. Go after them, go after them, go after them, go after them hard. But eventually, if they still refuse to repent, they want to live this double life. I want to live in the world and in the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let whom he who has done this be removed from among you. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, hand him over, hand her over to Satan, whom they are walking with anyway. Hopefully, they will feel the weight of their sin. Hopefully, God will use that time to call them back so they're not like, I still feel kind of comfortable in church. I still feel kind of comfortable in the world, so I'm kind of doing both. Well, hand them over so that to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Why? The end of that verse tells us why. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the hope. And so when we think of Old Testament God with New Testament God, it's like God hasn't really changed his tune that much, has he? I mean, we don't live in the theocracy of days gone by. We're not going to have public stonings. But God still says, deal with the persistent sinner, the one who refuses to repent not the one who tries and fails. We all try. We all fail. We all fail. We all fall, but we get back up. But the person who refuses to try, deal with them swiftly. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And you sit here and you say, I'm convinced you got me. Case closed. I realize little leaven, not good, leavens the whole lump. We have to take sin seriously. I'm with you, Peter. I'm with you. But what do we do about the sin that we don't know of? Like, what if there's leaven among us that we are unaware of? How can we possibly, we're finite human beings. What do we do about that? Well, 
That's a valid concern. But God hasn't left the purity of his church solely up to the members of his church. Just like with Achan, Ananias and Sapphira, he continues to play a very active role in removing the leaven from the lump. And God loves his children enough to discipline them. On his own, through circumstances that you and I could have no control over, God loves his children enough to discipline them. Now, if you've noticed throughout this time, I've been referring to Ananias and Sapphira as believers. I actually believe that they were believers. Part of that is because they're listed among those who believe, Acts 4.32, that's the context. So they're listed among those who believed. And you say, yeah, but look at what happened to them. Like, look at how they finished. Like, not awesome. They were judged by God for their sin. My response to you would be, that's actually what reassures me that they were believers. Because God disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines his kids. So flip over to Hebrews chapter 12 so I can show you something. The book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 and verse 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Here it is. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So when I look at Ananias and Sapphira, I actually see the discipline they enduring as, as legitimizing them, not casting them out. I see how they finished and saying, wow, God only disciplines his kids. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's what the word of God says in Hebrews 12, verse, chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. And so seeing the Lord discipline them gives me hope for them that I'll probably see them in heaven. Why? Because God disciplined them. If I'm taking my dog for a walk and I'm walking down the street and uh, I see a bunch of kids fighting in the front yard, a couple of houses down, and one of my kids is among them, who do you think I'm going to pull out of that bunch? My kid, right? And he's like a son to me. So I'm probably going to pull him out because that is my child. I have responsibility to that child. I love that child. I'm going to raise that child and discipline that child and correct that child and love that child because that's what? My child. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God disciplines his kids. If I was walking down the street and I saw a bunch of kids fighting in the front yard of a house, but my kids weren't there, I would probably keep walking. I'd probably say something, but I wouldn't be saying something in the same way that I would if my kid was involved. But I discipline my children. I go after my kids. Now, I'm not a pessimist. I don't think I'm a pessimist. I try not to be a pessimist. There's like 2,000 people in our church over three different locations, not, uh, or soon to be three different locations, not to mention the amount of people who hear our sermons online. And so I'm going to say this. There's someone hearing this sermon who is to some degree living a double life. And no one knows except that person and God. Like they've gotten really good at it. Like they really, I mean that. No one knows. They've gotten good at it. No one knows about that other bank account. No one knows about the guy that you're hooking up with on the side. You've become really good. Like it's second nature. As you look at stuff on your phone, you just erase your web history. No one knows. Your parents have no clue that you're not really at work. Your church friends have no idea what you're doing with your other friends, and you've arranged it in such a way that literally those two worlds never meet. They may never ever meet. 
And it's been this way for days, for weeks, for months, for years. Someone hearing this message is living, to some degree, a double life. And you've found what appears to be a a happy middle ground where you can walk with Jesus and also walk in this other way of living and nobody knows except you and God. Like you've nailed it. And you know God knows. But he's not doing anything about it. But you know, like, for sure God knows. You're not, you don't doubt that he knows. You're not doubting these. No, you, as far as you're, you love God, you know he knows this. And you think to yourself, God knows. He surely knows. But he's not doing anything about it. So he must be, like, not happy about it, but probably just allowing it, okay with it. He's not stepped in. He surely could have stepped in, but he didn't. Because if he weren't happy about it, he would, something would have happened by now, and it hasn't. So I'm sure he's not thrilled with it, but to some degree, we're cool. And friends, that which reassures you should be that which concerns you. Because God disciplines every one of his true, legitimate children. So the fact that you're getting away with it causes me to wonder, and should cause you to wonder, if you're really a legit child of God. Christians aren't sinless but we try to sin less. We make great efforts to sin less. If we're not trying and we're sinning more, God sees the rumble on the front lawn and snatches us out because he cares enough to discipline us. So we're either trying and growing and falling and getting back up, or we're not trying and God says, come here, you've been, just picks us up out of our own sin. When neither of those things are happening, You know you're not trying, and God's not stepping in. You need to question whether you are really a child of God, because God disciplines his kids. If you're not running back to God, trying, clawing at the ground, running back to the fold, or you don't see God running hard after you as you're trying to run to take a long run off of a short cliff, you need to take note and you need to be aware. Acts 5 and verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Don't think that it's a good sign that you're successfully living with one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom to think God must be cool with this. That which reassures you should be that which concerns you. Now, if you're sitting here, I just want to say this, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I feel like he's preaching to me. That is impossible. I don't know that other part of your life. I'm not preaching to you. God is. You say, that's me. It's me. I'm, I'm successfully living a double life. I'm not running towards God. I don't even see him running towards me. I may, I may not be his kid. I may not be in the fold. I may not be a sheep. I really might not be saved. That very well may be the case. And that can change. 
that can change. Take note of the fact that you're breathing. It's pretty cool. That means your story's not over yet. It's pretty cool. Take note of the fact that you woke up today. That's pretty cool. Take note of the fact that God and his sovereignty has you here today, has you listening to this sermon today. Don't lightly regard these things. Take note of the fact of what we read in Romans 2 and verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That God has given you time and given you yet another day and given you yet another time to hear his word and to have it wash over yourself and that which you have run from before, that's what you've just said, fine, thanks, I'm going to go do my own thing, no one's going to know, I'm going to know. That, that doesn't have to be that way anymore because God's given you another day and today is the day of salvation. And God tells us in 1 John 1 and verse 8 that if we say we have no sin, we only deceive who? Ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The very next verse says, but if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah to Christ. It's a promise to anyone. It's a promise to you. You realize today, I'm a hypocrite. I am the hypocrite. Oh my gosh, I need to change. Today is that day for change. This is the word of God meant for you. You can come to Christ. You can confess your sin. You could say, I'm done living the double life. I want to be wholly devoted to you. But there's going to be that enemy or that own sinful nature that's going to be gnawing at you saying, you don't want to do that. It's going to, yeah, it's really messy. It's a long road to hoe. Try this. Keep trying this out. Maybe you can cut down. You're living 50-50. Just, just 75-25. Like just, you could probably balance it out a little more. You give more to God than you are to the world. All these rationalizations, because when you rationalize, you make rational lies. And then you are going to tell yourself that I can live this double life. It's a different double life. It's not the same as the Ananias and Sapphira double life. Oh, today if you hear his voice... Harden not your hearts as in the day of the rebellion. You say, my, this is a long time I've been sinning. I'm, I step into this light, it's going to cast a long, long, long shadow. But Proverbs 28, 13 gives us this promise. Promise. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You say, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I am prospering. And I'm looking back at you saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. You think you're prospering. You're not prospering. You fooled only yourself. You've not fooled the Lord. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But here's the promise. But he who confesses and forsakes them will, not might, not sometimes, not two out of three, will obtain mercy. Note the simplicity and the certainty of that verse. Will not prosper. Will obtain mercy. That promise is for you today. And any one of us who loves Jesus and has sinned much, we've found Jesus' mercy to be much, much more than the depths and the breadth and the height of our sin. We've found Jesus' mercy to run hard after us, to be well worth whatever it's cost, because Jesus is better, his mercy is better, and where sin abounds, grace abounds much, much more. Hallelujah to Christ. And that same thing that we found, we who are not sinless, but try to sin less, you can find today. You can leave it all at the foot of the cross. You can cry out to God and say, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. I want to be wholly devoted to you. And God's not going to cross his arms and say, well, we'll see. No. He's going to run towards you. You might take a step towards him. He's going to run towards you and tackle you with mercy and grace and said, my son who is dead is alive. He who has been lost has now been found and he is going to throw a party over your life because you've come to him. And it won't be easy, but it will be so worth it because However much you've sinned, however much you're continuing to sin, his mercy is more. Every time, all the time, his mercy is more. And he looks to you today 
And he says, what's mine is yours if you need it. My righteousness, it's yours if you need it. The oneness that I have with my father, it's yours if you need it. You want to be in the family of God? I am the son of God. You want to be a child of God? What's mine is yours if you need it. He gives it freely to all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're breathing today. You can do that because God's given you another day, another chance, another opportunity to hear his voice and harden not your hearts. Father in heaven, what greater example is there of mercy than an omniscient God who chooses to not keep score? It's not that you can't, you don't know. You're an omniscient God who knows the score and chooses not to keep it and not to hold it against me. You're an omniscient God who knows every one of my sins. You know sins that I'm unaware of in my life. But because of your mercy, because of your grace, because of your son, my savior, your mercy is more than my sin. More than able to wipe out my transgressions. Lord, if you were to mark our transgressions, who would stand? None of us. But because of your grace, because of your mercy, we are able to come into your presence and worship you and praise you. And I pray, oh God in heaven, for your name's sake, call people to yourself today. Lord, restore unto us who know you the joy of your salvation, but Reach into the heart of someone who is not expected to be reached today by your grace, by your mercy, and call them out of a double life into a single life, a singular life devoted wholly to you. And show them the depths and the height and the width and the breadth of your grace and mercy. Amen.